couple things have happened uh, uh, very recently that I think are, are quite interesting. Uh, uh, not the, so much the, uh, well, I, they fall into several categories. Uh, one is uh, the announcements around Apple uh, and, and uh, their new uh, products. And uh, another thing is the uh, midterms and the calculations regarding uh, the politics of the Supreme Court nominations, uh, etc. Uh, and uh, I wonder if, do you see any uh, uh, congruence between those two issues? Well, that, that will call on uh, deep Talmudic uh, synthesis. Well, of course, that's what we're, our job is. Yes, it is. Let's see. Um, well, Apple is uh, all about increasing shareholder value. Um, and nominating right-wingers to the Supreme Court is about increasing Trump's shareholder value. Um, and um, and uh, I, guess they, I guess you could see that they're, they're parallel. I don't know if they're connected, but they're certainly in parallel. Now, what is, about them is in parallel, uh, other than that they're going on at the same time? Well, they, both both Apple has a, consist, a constituency that they serve. They have a shareholder constituency and a customer constituency. And Trump has constituencies that he serves. He's got a voter consist, constituency and he's got a donor constituency. Um, so how, how significant do you think that the donor constituency has been for Trump so far? And how do you think that's going to impact on the midterms? Well, there is a strange alliance going on between Trump, who doesn't seem to have any real interest in the Republican donor constituency, other than the fact that, at least in terms of income level, he's probably among them. So all of the things that he does to support them in terms of uh, tax reduction also um benefits him and his family and his mm-hmm. cronies. Um, so the, there's no great connection between the two, but but the Republican donor constituency has made the devil's bargain with Trump. They say, all right, we'll put up with all your Michigas if you'll just give us these few things. Mm-hmm. And, and so he's been happy to give them those few things. Uh, he, he didn't pick his Supreme Court nominee, uh, the Heritage Foundation, uh, and the Federalist Society picked a list for him, said, choose from these. Although among that list, he happened to pick the one person who said that uh, he doesn't believe that a president should be subpoenaed. So, uh, you know, given, given a short list to pick from, he that seemed to be most favorable to his current predicament. Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure that uh, that seems to me to be uh, calling for uh, the assumption that these guys are a lot smarter at what they do than uh, is apparent from, uh, for example, the uh, attorneys that they hire. Well, Trump does not act like a smart person. That is true. But he does seem to have uh, a certain kind of street smarts that has put him in the White House. I mean, he constantly says that, look, I'm president, you're not. So I must be doing something right. And how's that going to go? Uh, I mean, I'll just ask you point blank. Do you think that the uh, uh, Democrats will flip the House? Yes, I think that's I think the everything, everything that I've read and know suggests that that's a high probability. 
And what about the Senate? Um, that's a low probability, but more and more people are saying it's possible. Uh, it used to be the conventional wisdom was that it was impossible. And now people are giving it uh, closer odds. I still think it. I, I still think it's unlikely because of the map. The you know the the Senate is voted on a third, a third, a third each two years, and it just so happens that the Democrats have many more seats to defend this year than the Republicans. So the it, the, the Democrats have a harder job than the Republicans do. Whereas with the House, the whole thing flips every two years. Well, from a political perspective, it seems that what's most important is to flip the House uh, in order to get subpoena power and therefore uh, break the logjam that uh, the Republicans have uh, in terms of investigating the, uh, the president and his team. Yes, the, the favorable result of flipping the House is exactly what you said. You, you get to control the agenda and you get to control the committees and the investigations. The favorable outcome of flipping the Senate, if that's possible, is that you can just put a halt to all of these right-wing court nominations. Yeah, but, uh, you know, given the, uh, what's the thing that broke the filibuster? Uh, the, nuclear the nuclear option, option I guess. They called it the nuclear option. Yeah, so that, that seems to, it doesn't so much uh, stop all those nominations as change who those nominations would be. I mean, look at the situation. If uh, the uh, circumstances regarding uh, this uh, kind of uh, sexual abuse or, uh, uh, you know, problem that uh, Kavanaugh has, uh, if, if that ends up blocking him, uh, which I would suggest is probably unlikely given the fact that uh, the Republicans right now have the votes to be able to push through the nomination regardless. Uh, but let's say that for some reason this that, that blocks it, who are they going to come up with next? They've still got a list of, uh, of uh, judges that will do the same job absolutely there is a there is a list that, that trump is picking from and he'll pick someone else from the lips but if the democrats have a majority even though the filibuster is now out of the picture if they have a majority they can block all of the extreme right-wing judges that trump puts forward and he'll have to pick someone more moderate but he hasn't I mean, I mean you know you can say that these guys are extreme right wing but uh, uh he seems to be kavanaugh uh seems to be a uh, i mean as was uh, gorsuch they seem to be uh effectively uh strong enough uh down the middle uh conservative yes but down the middle enough to be able to get uh, you know, have a credible nomination don't you think that'll continue um, it you know it just depends on where you if you've got a spectrum it de it depends on where you put the dividing line in the spectrum. I think that that dividing line is going to move a little bit to the left if the Democrats have the have control of the Senate. Right. I think the key words are a little bit. Yeah. So so uh, you know looking at the uh, I mean we've got fifty uh, until uh, the midterms. It seems like uh, the so much of the theoretical stuff about uh, uh, fake news and uh, the manipulations of the technology and social media uh, are starting to come into 
a, a much more local uh, or what I would call sort of micro network uh, kind of context where uh, we're moving into what Trump's uh, skill was at uh, managing a very small majority uh, is now flipping the other way in the sense that uh, the Democrats seem to be engaged enough, at least potentially, uh, to be able to turn the House. Uh, and uh, to your point, I think the uh, turning the Senate, I think, is a much more difficult job. And frankly, I don't think that they're looking to uh, uh, convict. They're looking to slow down. Absolutely. So uh, that is the disruption. So let, let me just use a, a very broad stroke to... Uh, bring in the uh, Apple announcements, because uh, I think they, too, show uh, a certain uh, trend and power uh, in, in terms of what Apple is doing that uh, is at least potentially, and I think probable, probable that it is transformative to uh, the technology space. Go on. Well, don't you think that, I mean, you, you used to work for Apple. Yes, I did. And, yes. and I'm a huge uh, fanboy of uh, Apple. Uh, and by that, I mean, I'm a regular uh, acolyte of their products because I consider them to be, uh, you know, challenged in certain ways. But they're overall, I, they're uh, the best waste of my money that I can think of. Yes. So I, I, I think that what's going on with their, uh, a number of the uh, it, it's the infrastructure for their technologies I find fascinating. The whole uh, uh, subscription model uh -huh. uh, uh, as applied to upgrades, I think that that's uh, an enormous uh, strategic uh, advantage that they have and will continue to have. What do you think? Um, I agree with that. I don't. I don't. Ha I wish I had figures on uh, how many people buy into the subscription model. It's pretty pricey. Uh, you know, if you decide that you want to have an upgrade every year, it's a great, it's a great deal. But these things are so good now that you, you really don't have to upgrade every year to still have a very satisfying experience. You can upgrade every few years. And I don't know what the numbers are in terms of their customer base and how many people are on the um, subscription model. Well, it, you know, I, I'm not sure either, but I, I it used to be that there was no such thing as uh, unlimited bandwidth. Uh, and, you know, the carriers seem to uh, control the choke points uh, in terms of the digital economy. And I think that they're moving back in that direction. But the, I think that uh, Steve Jobs basically with the uh, iPhone, the original iPhone and the second one in particular, really opened up. Uh, the ability to pin AT&T down and provide an experience around, uh, you know, touching a screen. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the old, the old line that he, I think he used in several places, but uh, most quoted at a TED conference where he said he didn't want to have to crawl through the orifices of the car the orifices of the carriers to define his products. But up until the iPhone, it was the carriers who defined the product. They said, here are our requirements. They put out a requirements list. And any hardware manufacturer who wanted to make a handset that worked with them had to meet those requirements. And Steve said, all right, no, I've got a whole new product. Now you can meet my requirements and I'll give one of you 
an exclusive on it and he got AT&T and that's what flipped the whole thing. So where, where do we see that, uh, that leverage uh, now? What, what do you think is going on? That's why I mentioned the subscription model. I think that that's the sort of the harbinger of the whole uh, digital uh, iPhone economy. Well, you know, in terms of in terms of Apple's goals, and and this started as a goal, not a reality, even while I was there. Uh, you know, a- Apple looked at the old line IBM model. Um, you know, in the mainframe days, a huge amount of IBM's revenue was booked based on subscriptions, service contracts. Um, so they started each year with a lot of revenue on the book because that's, that's the kind of business they were in. Apple was selling retail computers. They started the year with no revenue booked. You know, every, every year you started from zero and you had to sell computers. And it was always Apple's goal to try and figure out how do you get subscription models? Could you have some software on a subscription model? model? You know, now they have server space on a subscription model. They have content on a subscription model and and now they're moving hardware into a subscription model it, it's a great deal if you can start the year with a lot of money on the books and and not have to make those sales right that's you know salesforce in the cloud is the canonical example of these days yeah i mean you know it, it was the model of services uh selling electricity selling water selling cable um Everybody would like to be in that business where you don't have to make every sale starting from zero. So the, uh, the architecture of this uh, subscription update model, uh, it, it's very sophisticated this time. I mean, last year uh, I went through it with uh, uh, the iPhone X and there were, there were a few speed bumps there, uh, but this year it literally was a notification that I got, which basically you click on it and it walks you through uh, a pre, uh, pre-order uh, where you clear your uh, 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 going through uh, the bank that, that renders the, uh, uh, the loan, if you will. And uh, you come out the other side and then it tells you uh, we'll send you a notification on uh, the, what the, whatever day it was, uh, about a week later uh, or four days later, and you log on at midnight and you get this notification. You click on that and it takes you about 20 seconds to uh, register and then you're in the queue uh, as opposed to what had gone on over the previous 10 uh, uh versions of, of the iPhone and the iPad, et cetera, which was uh, really, you know, basically standing online originally outside of uh, uh, the first store with uh, Robert Scoble. Right. And, and eventually uh, it's come down to this automated process, which, uh, you know, basically uh, I ex- expect that that will also disappear as people basically uh, will opt out of an assumed a continued relationship in the future rather than opting in. I, I, I think the trend is that way. I, you know, as, as, again, I wish I knew what the numbers were. Uh, I think people outside of the industry have no idea what a complex business it is in terms of the, 
software design, product design, supply chain, the, um, the marketing, the distribution, and the customer support, pre-sale and post-sale. I mean, you, you, they've, they've done so well at simplifying it that it's very hard from the outside to even conceive how much complexity they have consumed um, and, and simplified. Right. I think the, the, the way that they've, an example would be Apple Pay, which came in on the back of, uh, you know, the identity uh, services of uh, the facial recognition, for example. Uh, you know, those are two separate things, which uh, in the abstract, you, you don't really think, well, oh, that's kind of cool. It's, you know, sci-fi. It's my flying car. Uh, uh, but in terms of practicality and when the two streams merge all of a sudden the apple pay uh, becomes this trivial but uh, enormously powerful uh, mechanism once you've done it once successfully and discovered that it's not particularly complicated and the supply chain uh, the stores if you will uh, uh, discover the same thing then all of a sudden they're just huge amounts of uh, energy switch over to this new model yes in fact it was apple pay that helped sell me on my first apple watch because i i i kept an older iphone that uh, did support apple pay but with a watch i could do apple pay without upgrading my iphone and i remember the first time i used it at walgreen the woman behind the cashier just said did you just magic that <laughs> she had never seen it happen but i just i tapped my watch and put my wrist on the reader and I was I was done, and she was flabbergasted. Well, it wasn't that in some way that wasn't that the you know the genius of Steve Jobs among other things, but definitely this this ability to be able to envision uh, the future and the path to the future. Yes, and the timing to the future. Um, you know, there is there's a limit at which people can assimilate new technology, and. You know, there's also a limit in, in, in terms of uh, the bill of materials it takes to deliver the technology. But managing it all was a good part of Steve's um, brilliance. So let's uh, loop back uh, and wind this one up by suggesting uh, that, uh, you know, we see so much turmoil in terms of social media and uh, it's impact and uh, unintended consequences uh, in the uh, so-called real world uh, when are who are we going to see candidates or political parties or uh, public figures that are going to be able to manage this uh, uh, looking ahead in time uh, in the same way that some of the technology people that have uh, fostered this new age have uh, on the technical side? You know, I think there it gets harder because there seems to be such a sharp divide among the population. Um, even on the technical side, you know, Apple is, Apple is sometimes described as a cult, a religion. It's, it's like a political party. There are Apple fans and there are people who are you know, violently opposed to Apple for some reason. And just, they just cringe at the thought of Apple. But 
even more so in the political sphere, we're divided into into tribes that um, just don't see each other as part of the same enterprise. Right, but what we saw with the uh, carriers was uh, that Jobs somehow, uh, you know, got in the middle of that discussion and be and basically played them off against each other and produced, uh, you know, AT&T, I think, was at a low ebb at that point. Yes. Uh, and he was able to bootstrap them into uh, a majority. And, you know, now everybody's doing the same thing. Yes. But isn't that possible potentially with uh, our political situation? Possibly. But remember, when you when you want to make a sale to a carrier, you're making a sale to a very small committee. You're not really, um, you're not really enticing all of the all of the employees of the of the carrier or all of the customers of the carrier. There's a very small decision making group, who's probably the CEO and the CTO and a few other people who will consider your proposition. And if you get them, you've got it. If not, you don't. Politics is harder, I think. Well, of course it's harder, but at the same moment, you see uh, another small uh, impact on most people, but it's had a little bit of impact on me because of uh, uh, we uh, uh, spend some of our time each year in uh, South Carolina, the Charleston area, and uh, uh, there's this hurricane that's been bearing down. One of the things that I found was interesting about this particular hurricane as opposed to others uh, is that the communications industries uh, the news, uh, video, uh, notifications, you know, the whole apparatus that people have to be able to fail over from one uh, piece of information to another uh, has been very effective in this one uh, as these charts and uh, video of the path of the storm uh, was dissected in a couple ways, one of which was the uh, you know, keeping people on the same channel, whether it's MSNBC or the Weather Channel or whatever, uh, where they're selling uh, a mixture of information and and fear, uh, just to be able to sell the advertising that surrounds the uh, the uh, publication, uh, and a, a, a sort of micro-targeted uh, pieces of information, so that you could, at, at a level that you couldn't before you can actually figure out what you need to do to keep you and the people that you care about safe. And I, I think that, that there is an analogy between that and what may well be happening in the midterms uh, and our uh, political reality. Uh, you know, I think people weren't really paying attention uh, except maybe uh, a small group of people in the... Uh, Cambridge, uh, whatever the name of that company was that was paying attention in 2016. Analytica. Yeah, Cambridge Analytica. So uh, now I think that the possibility, there is hopefully the possibility that both sides uh, in this political uh, equation are paying attention and that that may uh, redound to the benefit of uh, the Democrats uh, since we are now out of the smaller but uh, very... Uh, polarized uh, primary season. So I, I know I'm skipping around here, but I think that there's something about this uh, micro network uh, uh, 
capabilities. There's one of the things lot. about the micro network capability is that congressional races are local. You have a congressional district, and Senate races are statewide. Um, there is no national race, uh, whereas for president there is a national race. Um, so it could be managed very differently. You, you know, there there were times when parties tried to nationalize the congressional race. Uh, Newt, Gring, Newt Gingrich was famous for that in, in capturing Congress for the Republicans by nationalizing it. But but it, what seems to be happening this year is that the, the Democrats are localizing, and that's letting them put up candidates who are a little more conservative in conservative areas and a little more liberal or democratic socialist in those areas um, rather than trying to do global marketing for the democratic message they're doing it candidate by candidate um, you know when, when i was to loop back to apple when i was at apple uh, every country manager was in control of their own advertising and we tried whatever we could to unify it all and to unify a global brand for Apple. But they kept saying, no, no, you don't know my market. Uh, you, you live in California. Uh, we know our market and we know what we should be saying to our people. And then Steve came along and said, forget that. We're going to have one global Apple brand and you're going to, do, you're going to run the global Apple advertising and the global Apple marketing. Uh, and he could pull that off. But so what, was, what was he doing that... Uh made all of the local decisions. I mean, to me, there's there's an emotional component to what Apple does that I think unifies it. Across, it makes uh, global decisions feel local. Well, one of the things is that, remember, he came back in a crisis. Uh, Apple was circling the drain. So it was, on, on that basis, it was easy for him to get everyone's attention because he said, look, we are, we're, we're either going to be out of business or you're going to follow me make your choice and people said okay uh we'll follow you um you you may remember the the first macintosh product that he released under his regime was the imac the the bondi blue bubbly candy colored imac um and i remember a uh, a really good apple product marketing manager getting in touch with me at the time and saying this will never work do you know how many times we have tried to market an all-in-one computer and our retailers won't take it because they're used to either what was called a tower configuration, you know, a tall computer that sits under your desk, or a pizza box configuration, which sits on your desk with a monitor separate. And an all-in-one configuration, they, they, just, they just wouldn't order them. And I said, well, you don't realize that Steve isn't going to give them a choice of what to order. He's going to sell them this. He's going to put all of his advertising behind this and they are going to order it. Or otherwise they won't have any Macs to sell. Steve could do that. So how do we see uh, what what's happening with uh, the iPhone now and the iWatch and the, uh, just this kind of miniaturization of the uh vastly expanding main it's like a mainframe in your pocket at this yes point. it is well i i think that i think there are two levels that you can look at what apple did last week uh, one is to look at the products and what they can do and what they can do for you and the other is to look at the product strategy and the product marketing strategy and the segmentation strategy and you know i think both of them 
are brilliant as you analyze them. Um, what they introduced last year with the iPhone 10 or X, as people pronounce it, uh, was introduced a number of technologies, the most important of which was the face ID. And uh, people who didn't get it just didn't get it. Uh, you know, you, you've, got, you've got a finger ID. Uh, how much more friction is there to turning on your phone than touching it with your finger? And yet anybody who bought an, an, an iPhone 10 and began using Face ID, not just to turn on your phone and open the phone, but any secure uh, service or website that you interacted with. So if you were buying something from Amazon or doing a banking transaction or a stock transaction or anything that required secure identification, the fact that that was completely frictionless and also secure was transformative. And, and you know, having done that, their product marketing goal is to, you know, how do you transition everybody to it? They could, they could do that at the top segment of their market but they also have to serve people who can't afford $1,000 phones and $1,500 phones. And what they did this year by introducing the iPhone XR or 10R is absolutely brilliant because they didn't make it a second class product. They made it in some ways, absolutely uh, the peer of the top two models. And in one particular way, even better than the top two models. The, the, the third lowest model has the longest battery life in the entire product line. And they all have the same processor and they all do mostly the same things. Uh, although in terms of AR and photography, there are some extra levels of tricks you can do with the two, with the two cameras. Still, by and large, all three models are functionally the same. And it, a lot of it is just fit and finish. So they've managed to uh, expand the whole top end of their line into the new era. And then over time, uh, as you know, they always keep last year's and the year before that model in the line at reduced prices. So you're going to see them migrate the whole line to iPhone 10 technology. Um, and, and they've just done, a, 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 I think, a, a brilliant job at being, being able to manage their entire population and bring more of them into the new era of uh, the new capabilities that they're putting forward based on the new chip, the A12 chip. Well, I think, uh, I think you've uh, ably uh, described uh, how transformative they are. The question then is, is uh, at least uh, our conversation is, uh, how can we have some of this uh, rubbing off on our horrendous political situation. And I think that there are some clues there. There are some clues. The, pro the, 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 the deal with politics is that you need a candidate. Um, you know, politics, politics consists of alliances. It consists of um, principles. It consists of policies. But if you don't have a candidate, if you don't have a product at the, at the top of the ticket, the, the, the thing that people vote for, um, it's very hard. It's very hard to make progress. So that's, you know, that's the mysterious part of it. Well, I would, I, I would suggest that the, uh, the digital citizen uh, that is resulting not just from uh, what Apple does, but from uh, the price performance that uh, Google brings, 
uh, with Android and, you know, d- down through the value chain, uh, a, a digital citizenship is becoming more and more accessible to more and more people. And as such, uh, the concerns and, and how you produce uh, editorial, essentially, across that population is now uh, up for grabs uh, in a way that uh, I think is significant. You know, the biggest problem I thought with 2016 was not the candidates, it was the media. And I, I think for most of this past two years, uh, the media has been just completely uh, overwhelmed by uh, what I guess you could call the, uh, the old eyeball model. And uh, I think that there's an opportunity here, uh, as I think you've suggested, and certainly I, I think, uh, that being able to leverage smaller uh, uh, but more powerful influential networks uh, to be able to popularize functions which then sell into uh, you know a growing population uh, as the 10R or however you would call it XR uh, suggests you 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 basically bring along you, you get the uh, the thought leaders and the uh, uh, the people on the edge to buy into something which doesn't necessarily have all that much appeal, and then you layer it with uh, intersecting technologies, which give you a, an experience that people find compelling, and it changes the conversation about what's important. The um, here's another parallel to think about. Um, you know, with with technology, you you only vote at the moment that you make a purchase or that you sign up to a service. Um, but you interface with that technology uh, every day, many times a day. Um, it used to be with government, you would make that choice on election day, and then you really didn't interface with the person you elected at all you may you 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 might interface with government services and with your social security check and with your uh sewage line and your and and your garbage collection but you didn't really enter you didn't really have any relationship with the person at the top trump changed that through twitter people people now can't get away from trump they can't. You just can't get away from Trump. Everybody has to cover him, retweet him, respond to him, hate him. Uh, I, there has never been a politician that has been so psychically pervasive of, of people's consciousness in my memory. Um, maybe Roosevelt did that when he, when he got on the radio. I don't know. That was before my time. But, um, but, but Trump has been transformative in, in that respect. And one of the things that happens, I think, is that Trump has educated the population on politics in a way that no other president has. The, the fallacy of most of our politics on the, on the presidential level has been that it's been about the person. And so uh, we, had the, we had the odd anomaly this time of the two least favorable polling candidates in the history of, uh, of presidential voting that have ever run against each other. Um, 
Hillary's negatives were horrible. Trump's negatives were horrible. And people focused on whether they liked or didn't like Hillary, whether they wanted or didn't want a woman to be president, whether they thought Trump was, uh, a, a, you know, an, an ignoramus, a bully, uh, a, um, uh, a pussy grabber, whatever, whatever it was, or a, a Russian stooge. They focused on those two candidates. But the reality of electoral politics is that the president brings along a whole government, a whole group of people who are committed to various policies, and um, and they they come in, you know, without people paying too much attention to them. If you you talk about the vast population, people who are focused and aware of how politics works and how government works, understand that you're not electing just Hillary Clinton. You're electing Hillary Clinton and everybody in her policy entourage. And same thing with Trump. You're electing Trump and everyone in Paul Ryan's policy entourage. But but that's not what people focus on, the way we dramatize and report campaigns. And I think that Trump, by his behavior and by what the GOP Congress has done under the leadership of Paul Ryan and uh, Mitch McConnell, is educate people a little more to a deeper level uh, that there's that there is more to politics than the name of the candidate and the personal uh, proclivities of the candidate. Um, yeah, and I, I'll just reach back for my uh, try failed attempt to bring in the uh, hurricane, but I, I think that you make a really interesting point here, which is that. Uh, the information base, the uh, what some people say, the solution to fake news is, which is educate the uh, listener, the viewer, uh, to understand how to be more prescriptive in terms of uh, processing and identifying uh, the value of information. And you know, the the thing about the hurricane was is that you look at this thing; it's not like it's a big surprise when it happens, but uh, at each local level. Uh, it comes down to a, a certain calculation. Right. And you have to figure out what are the relevant pieces of information that are going to affect you and then move slightly or quickly ahead of that so that you can keep people safe. Right. And I, I think you, that you have to make that, local choices. Right. And if you're not in the area, you know, the only choice you make is how much you will try and donate to help people who aren't in the area. But, yeah. but and that, I that, that's not a dangerous that, choice. You know, when you're in the area, it's a dangerous choice. Do I stay or do I go? How do I stock up? Uh, how do I ride this out? And, and from a you know, media perspective, uh, there's a tremendous fatigue that occurs when you're basically confronted by the uh, information uh, monetization pattern say, uh, you know, uh, weekly or daily shows, one after the other, repeating on a cable uh, news network philosophy, uh, you, you get sick of the fear that's being sowed to a general broader audience while not having uh, access to the sort of feedback loop that's important to you. That's what you want to find out. Right. And, uh, you know, so balancing that and coming up with uh, what I'm calling micro networks that allow you to be able to massage that information and make it uh, more tunable to what your particular interests are, uh, sort of personalization uh, meets humanization, as Paul Greenberg is uh, suggesting. <laughs> <laughs>
these are important characteristics and hopefully they'll be uh, apparent in the next 54 days or whatever it is. Let us hope so. All right. Well, thank you. This has been a, uh, as I suspected, would be a fascinating discussion, at least from uh, my end listening to you. So thank you very much. Thanks, Markman. Thank you, Steve Gilmore. And scene. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.